A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 1 through 34. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollyon, they came to Thessalonica, where they, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he visited them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them, from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God fearing Greeks and a significant number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason and were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world, have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these people were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether that these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed along with a significant number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brothers sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he observed that the city was full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who had to be present, happened to be present. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers as well were conversing with him. Some were saying, what could this scavenger of tidbits want to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Aragopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming? 
for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know the, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything that is in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his descendants. Therefore, since we are the descendants of God, we ought not to think that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by human skill and thought. So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we shall hear from you again concerning this. So Paul went out from among them, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius and Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's open up in prayer. Father, this morning we pray that your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven, that you would rule this morning, that you'd give us the bread we need, the substance from your word to be nourished and grow, and grow, that you would deliver us from evil, that you would forgive us our sins as we forgive others, and as we grow in community, Lord, that you would teach us your ways and become more obedient to you. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. So first I want to give a, just a special thank you to Jonathan Maddox, um, uh, Robbie, Daniel Williams, Byron Burks, uh, who helped with shoveling the snow or other things out in the snow today, this morning. Our, yeah, thank you guys for, for just being willing to do that. Um, our snowplow company did come, and you, which you won't be able to tell anyways. 
because it's coming so fast. The, the snow this morning, we're often reminded of how, uh, how pure and white snow is. It reminds us of how Jesus cleanses from our sins. But I'm reminded of our sin this morning, how the snow falls. is As soon as you shovel it, you think it's gone, you look back, and it's, it's yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> it's crouching at the door. It's ready for you. Uh, even since the beginning of the service, you could see out in, in the front, and its walkways are already covered. And so... Um, this morning, as we continue in going through the book of Acts, and we're looking at how the first disciples, the apostles, after Jesus was resurrected and had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, what did they do? How did they build churches? How did they build communities, particularly in the context of, of history of when, when God had decided to do this, where there was going to be a huge persecution of Christians, a great outpouring of God's wrath on Jerusalem, and eventually Rome would fall. And so we want to see what, was, what did they do, what were their tactics, what were they about day after day in their communities, how they built churches, how they did missions, um, how they related to one another that outlasted the surrounding cultures that were doomed to fail. And so... Um, our, our theme verse that we constantly want to go back to and, and look as a, as a window or a set of glasses that we're going to view the whole book of Acts in is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I usually, I apologize for not getting an, an outline out this week, but uh, later we'll look at Psalm 22:27 to 31. You can kind of earmark that, and we'll come back. Is I'm trying to relate a, a scripture verse, primarily an Old Testament passage, that points to the same thing of what Jesus' mission was. And we've relayed that to the Great Commission and, and other things in Jesus' ministry that he directly spoke about. But through, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through, through, uh, we will be witnesses in, in the whole earth until the whole earth uh, becomes Christianized. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian will, or every person will be a Christian, but it does mean that the whole earth will stream to the Lord. I'm reminded of, uh, in I believe it's the Isaiah passage, where, or I'm sorry, it might be Jeremiah 31, where it talks about the new covenant, and it tells them, in those days, they will not have to tell you, know the Lord, because they will all know the Lord. And there will be a point in time where you uh, say, know the Lord, and they're like, know the Lord, we know who the Lord is. And that's, and we're working towards that. And so, uh, you know, in the overview of the, of the book of Acts, we've seen after Jesus ascended, there's the day of Pentecost. We instantly see bold preaching, community lifestyle, lives changed, miracles, which always leads to persecution, or almost always leads to persecution. More miracles and manifestations of the Spirit, which leads to more boldness in witnessing, which leads to more communal lifestyle, which means leads to more manifestations of the Spirit, which leads to more persecution, and the cycle we kind of see goes on. And so, uh, even though the church is suffering persecution and affliction, it's still growing. Uh, the beginning of the church offices, we, we looked at those in Acts chapter 6, um, and the, new, the major theme of the new wineskin of thinking with Gentiles being in the covenant and how they would relate to, to Gentiles coming into the, to God's covenant. 
And so we saw Paul's conversion and his missionary slash church planning journeys. And then last week, uh, we looked at particularly Timothy and the church at Philippi. And so we're in the section of scripture where this is considered Paul's second missionary journey or second church planning journey, where he was initially sent out by the church of Jerusalem, uh, by the apostles and the elders to deliver the letters of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And he um, gets, a, gets a vision. They're blocked by certain means to go to certain places, but he's still on mission. He's kind of on point to go and, and plant more churches, preach the gospel, establish Christian communities. And so today, we want to look at the, I particularly want to look at the church in Thessalonica, uh, their affliction and the community that God is building there, and their kind of counterpart, which would be Berea, how they received the word in, in, in different times. And so I don't think we're going to get time to have Paul, Paul's preaching in the Areopagus at Athens, but there's going to be, in subsequent weeks, doctrinal things that he says, how he preaches to the largely Gentile crowd, or almost all Gentile crowd, um, and he didn't have his team with him, and so the, how Paul looked in, in Athens was a little different, but with the same, same motives. And so we won't really get to that today, but the, there'll be things we'll throw in there in the subsequent weeks that, that follow. And so one of the things I want to get through, and as we are building church community, as we're moving towards membership, we are called with the same mission that, that the apostles were called to, that the early disciples were called to, to be filled with the Spirit and to be witnesses. And one of the first things we want to get through our, our way of thinking is none of the apostles went out in a revolutionary they, they saw the change that needed to happen, but none of them went out in a revolutionary way, top-down thinking, this is what we're going to do to change the world. They started from the bottom up um, in a way where they were building church communities. They were changing people's lives. Individuals were receiving the Gospels. They were working, as we saw in Philippi, with a few people, a household of the jailer and, um, and a couple other women who were the first people in the church. And, and that's, where, that's what God gave them, so that's what they, they worked for. And they saw that as how they're going to change society, how they're going to change the world. And so none of the apostles or disciples, early church plants, were revolutionary in nature. So revolutionaries, they're not patient. They want change now, and they focus on others' need to change. They focus on a top-down uh, in, in a society as we see various... Um, uh, Marxist and revolutionary attempts to change our society from the top down. Uh, that there, It's not patience. It's not changed on, on reformation from within. It's on others need to change, and it's usually from the top down. Reformers, on the other hand, understand the ways of God, that his covenant is generational, that what you're doing is going to affect the lives of those who you disciple and those who you are your natural children and your spiritual children that his, his covenant is generational, and it's increasing slowly over time. Jesus spoke very clearly about the kingdom growth that starts as a mustard seed, then grows into a full plant, or a little lump of leaven, a little piece of leaven gets worked into the whole bunch. It's going to take time, but you continue to work at it, you just keep pressing forward, and that's where it's going. And so reformers, understanding the ways of God, understanding generational covenantalness, slow, steady growth, 
um, focused on individuals, families, and churches is what the apostles are doing. And so they're not first primarily focused on others' needs to change, but primarily there and, and focusing on individuals' need to change. And that's the difference we see in, in the, the Jews and the persecutors that come after Paul and the church as they're looking for violent change now. We need this change now. And you can see that through, through history in various ways. And so revolutionaries want the top-down reformers. We want it the bottom-up. We want reformation with an encounter with Christ. That's when, he, when Jesus says you'll receive power from on high. And we understand that to be the baptism of the Spirit that happens at the day of Pentecost, that they have a personal encounter with Christ. Right? We're evangelicals, that everybody who walks through the door of Christ has to come through as, a, as an individual, but they're walking into the community of believers, right? the church. And so as reformers, the solution is what we're doing is individual repentance, reformation, taking that to our families and our, and our church community. And so the solution that the apostles and the early disciples were, were focused on that, on Christ, building Christian community. And really, there's other authorities and culture, like your, your school or your vocation, but really the institutions that God institutes for, for direct government of change outside of the first the individual, then the family, and then the church. And so outside of those realms of authority, God isn't asking uh, us to change by, by voting in the right direction. That might help, but that's not the primary means that God's asking. We don't see that anywhere in, uh, in, throughout the book of Acts as a model of starting from the top and working its way down. It's always starting from the bottom and working its way up. And that's something you should read throughout all the scripture. You should take that kind of wineskin of idea, start at Genesis, and reread the whole thing um, with that way of thinking. And so I think what Paul's focusing on and what, we're, what I want to look at here in Thessalonica, uh, we're going to, if you want to start turning, you can take a look and for yourselves, and especially First Thessalonians, is as you're reading through the book of Acts, I find this very beneficial. You see that Paul stops in Thessalonica. There's a 10, 20 verses on what he happens, but then go to the, the epistles that he wrote to the Thessalonians in First and Second Thessalonians and see it gives a much deeper idea of where you see Paul in his heart is. He wasn't just going to try to, you know, uh, start a church, get his name known, get out, you know, probably wasn't. He was getting his name known, but he was known as the guy that got beat up and stoned and persecuted and, and thrown out and, and other things. And so in, in that broader sense, you know, he was known differently within the church. And so you want to, as you're reading through, it's a good practice to say, okay, Paul stopped in Thessalonica. He planted a church. Let's stop. I did this this last week. Let's stop my reading here. Let's go to the epistles that he wrote and then reread and see if that makes a little bit more sense, or if that gives us a, a deeper view of what God's trying to establish. Because really, in our reading today, when you look at uh, what Paul's doing in Thessalonica, there's really no communal sense. He's, he's preaching. There are some disciples that get converted. There are people who get converted. There's no really manifestations of the Spirit and that we see in, in this chapter, um, but it's a little bit clearer in the epistle. And then they get persecuted and leave. 
And so you don't really get the, the loving tenderness that you see Paul have. That's very evident in, in 1 Thessalonians. And so what Paul's doing in going from city to city, God's ordained persecution, affliction. Now, I believe partially because I think Paul would have stayed longer if there if he didn't have any, any, any hindrance. Like we'll see when he gets to Ephesus, he stays for 18 months, I believe. And, and he stays until there's persecution. He stays until he gets kicked out. So uh, there's a good friend of mine uh, who, who's here in the church who once told me that they now have the way of thinking that they're going to go over to people's houses because he's very community-based, and he's not leaving until they ask him to leave. And, and it, it fosters a different kind of community, and uh, it's, in my experience, it's been mostly beneficial, but take it, take it for what it is. Um, and so what Paul's doing here is in building communities, I think Paul understands that in church communities, in the only communities that have the truth, that don't have the word, only have relationship with Christ, only have his Holy Spirit, the only ones that have been reconciled to the fa- Father are the backbone for the rest of society. That's why it's important what we do here is because we are the backbone for the rest of society. Every other church in their meeting this morning is a witness to Christ, whether they're meeting virtually or, or, or not, doesn't matter. But on, a, on normal Sundays, you know, we're a witness to that, that Jesus is our king. And the, the Jews at Thessalonica obviously had a problem with that. And so... As we're setting up and moving towards less organic and more organized structural membership, we have to keep that in mind that we're, the culture we build here is important because that will affect the rest of society. Right? We might not see it initially. We might not even see it in, in our generation, but God is covenantal. The church that was planted in the first century, we, they might have looked and said, you know, I just don't, we're not, we're not going to stop this persecution against Rome we're not, or against Jerusalem. We're not going to, and they see the society crumbling. You can go to the, to the gladiators arena and watch people, human people get killed on a daily basis. And within that first 40, 40 to 80 years, they might not have said that there was much change, except for now they're hanging Christians that have been tarred on the streets and lighting them. <laughs> that might have been the only real change that they, they have seen. Um, But generationally, God's covenantal, he's working through faithful witnesses in communities, in societies, to change entire nations. And so what we do here is really important. How we build culture, how we build um, our society as a church is is important. And so the the idea is, throughout Scripture, we, we get the idea that the church or the people of God, often in the Old Testament you can just translate that to, to Israel, the people of God, is called or um, or is called to mirror heavenly or you know a heavenly society. Uh, it's, it comes clear in the New Testament that the the church is supposed to mirror or represent heavenly society. And so Ephesians two nineteen says we're called the family of God, which he says remember that at one time you were not the co- you were you were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. At one point you were in, in, involved in the people of God. You were outside of that society. But now you're part of and citizens of the family of God. Hebrews 12.22 says directly that, that we are, we've come to the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
referring to the assembly of the saints, the church. And the New Jerusalem, we are called the New Jerusalem in Revelations 3, Revelation 3.12 and 21.2 and verse 10. And so we're supposed to mirror heavenly society, the way primarily the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact with each other. And uh, that is our basis for relationship here. And so uh, we have to understand that if we can't live in, live civilized lives in the church, then we can't expect the world to change. If anybody's fed up with uh, our society who is just, especially in the last two to three years, we've seen just a, a downfall of morality and ethics and, and tons of things. And if you're fed up with it, but you can't live in church culture, you can't live in your family in a civilized way, that mirrors, that mirrors how God lives, then, then there's no hope for us to actually make change. And then we need to repent and change. And so, but that's what we're here to do is, is affect the world. It's as we mirror heaven, then the earth will be, be affected. And so as we read through, we're going to look a lot at First Thessalonians um, this morning, but I want to set that kind of mindset, that precedence as you're reading through the book of Acts. We, we want change now. We want change to happen now. We, sometimes we mean societally, but sometimes we mean in, my, in our own lives. But slow faithfulness, steady growth is usually the Lord's means in, by obtaining his grace. Sometimes uh, even in, through the book of Acts with manifestations of the Spirit, we see large change overnight. But generally, it's, it's slow, steady, consistent growth. And so if you turn to 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look up, just as an overview, I know we read it in our scripture reading, but Paul uh, gets booted out of Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. He preaches in the synagogue, as was his habit, because he's going to the Gentiles, so he goes to the synagogues. Right? So everyone, uh, sometimes that points this out as, or comes out as kind of strange, but he knew that the, uh, the Gentiles, there was, um, there were God-fearers who attended synagogue and various things, and he was, that's where he was called to go, and he, even though he was called to the Gentiles, he went to the synagogues. That's where he would find who God was, who was, who was working on. So in Thessalonica, he's preaching in the synagogue. It turns, so it seems like he preached for, uh, just to put this in context, in, in Acts it says he stayed for three weeks, three Sabbath days, and preached uh, the gospel, preached to those, and reasoned with them. Um, and then, but it seems like he actually stayed much longer. It just seems like he did that in the synagogue for three weeks. And so it seems like, just to give you a, a contextual background, it seems like he was there for, for quite a bit longer. But if you would open up to... 1 Thessalonians, I want you to kind of see what Paul's heart was in how he related to the people. The kind of community that he was called to build wasn't just a, a structural organization like a, like a club that we're going to build and this is what God's doing. It was totally relational. So, he even starts in verse 2, we give thanks God always for you constantly mentioning, mentioning you in all of our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so he's saying, like, even I'm just remembering you always in my prayers. It's not something he just built, moved on, and forgot. And so if you would go uh, to chapter 2, verse 7, he's saying, but we were gentle among you like nursing, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That's the type of closeness, that's the relationalness that, that Paul had, had with, his, with the disciples and the people who came to Christ in the churches he was building. It wasn't a, uh, as we say, see you on Sunday, right? It, wasn't a, it was very relational. He said, I wasn't just there to preach the gospel, I was there to give you my own self, right? That's what uh, the kind of relationship that Paul had with the, the people he interacted with. And you can read chapter 1, 2, and all of chapter 3 is all about just relationship that he had. It's all about the care and love that he had for these people because they had become one in Christ. And that's the kind of the culture, the society that, that Paul was called to build in unity in the Spirit. And so if you turn back to Acts, there's... Some things that stand out as he was in Thessalonica is, is you get pitted against as Paul preaches in Thessalonica, builds the church, um, then he moves on and gets, he gets persecuted and kicked out to Berea. But um, what Paul was preaching was maybe a little bit different than what we would initially, um, maybe a little bit different how we would go about it. And so it says that Paul was preaching in the synagogues that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. And so he wasn't preaching yet, or it seems like there was, a, there was a first step of that the Jews had a mindset that they had to understand that the Christ was going to suffer and he was going to die. And so if in the first century, if you just went to a, uh, an Orthodox Jew and you said that, and they knew about Jesus, and, and they'd be like, you said Jesus was the Christ. They'd say, no, because, because the Christ is the king, and he's a ruler, and he's going to come and stamp out our enemies, right? Even the, uh, even the disciples didn't get that until the day of Pentecost. They didn't quite get that. So um, when they're asking in, in Acts 1-7, that when, when are you going to come, and when are you going to come in victory and just stamp out our enemies, and when are you going to do it? And that's when Jesus says that you're going to receive powerful power from on high. And so, what this was the crux of Paul's gospel, particularly in the Jewish culture, is that he was trying to he was trying to help them understand the scriptures to, to get a new wineskin of thinking. First Corinthians fifteen. Uh, one through three, Paul saying, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that I, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And this is the same thing that as, as Jesus was traveling and preaching, that when 
when Jesus would teach directly uh, in Matthew 16 that, that I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the high priest, and they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'm going to be raised again. And the apostles, the 12 disciples were like, most of them were just like, that doesn't make any sense. I don't understand it, is the way the scriptures read. But Peter's the one that vocalizes, far be it from you, Lord, may it never happen. And what's Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan, for your mind is not set on the things of God, but set on the things of man. You are thinking in a humanly way if you don't understand that the Christ is going to, he had come to suffer, right? That was his, his main mission. And somehow that is just marvelous in our sight. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't quite get it. I don't quite understand it. I know what it says in the scriptures. I know what it means to have a penal substitutionary atonement. I know what it means to have my sins forgiven and, and him. But I don't get it. I don't know how it works. I don't understand it. And I don't know if we're going to. But I do know everywhere that the gospels preached that the Christ came and suffered, that he was ordained for death to die on, on my behalf, on, on, his, on uh, the people's behalf, and that we can have fellowship with God again through that, everywhere that's preached, lives are changed. Amen. Societies are changed. Families are changed. I don't get it, but it happens, right? And so, so this is how we ought to read the Old Testament, with eyes to see these things. And so when they couldn't... Um, um, well, let's go back to uh, that. Everybody knows Psalm 22 starts with, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He's encamped, says he's encamped by dogs who are, are against him. This is a psalm of David. And the psalm ends with all the earth is going to remember his name. All the posterity is going to serve him. It shall be told of the Lord of the, to the coming generation that they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that, that he has done it. And so... What, what I think Paul was doing was he was trying to open their minds to first understand that the Christ had to suffer because they didn't get that. They totally didn't understand. Um, they didn't understand that. And when you, when you look at their response that they couldn't find Paul, they couldn't find, find Silas, and so they're, they're starting to be this mob mentality. They're, they're bringing, uh, they want to throw Paul up uh, into prison or or, or, or get them thrown out in some way. And so they pick up, they get Jason, they get, that's kind of how the mob mentality rules is if I can't find the person I'm looking for, I'm going to find an associate and they're going to get it, right? And so they, they show their hand in objecting Paul at Thessalonica where uh, they, they say that, that these people oppose the rule of Caesar. It should be reminiscent of the Jews in John 19, 15, where Pontius asked, shall we, shall we crucify your king? And the chief priest answers, we have no king but Caesar. Right? The, sometimes when we think of in a pluralistic society that, you know, we've been kind of taught and raised to believe in our culture that there's multiple ways to God, or at least there's like some similarities between, between other religions, but the Jews, the chief priest, didn't want the Christ to come. He didn't. The ruling elder of, of, the, of the synagogue, or of the, of the temple, 
said, we don't have any king but Caesar, and they knew the Christ would be the king. And that's the, the main crux of where people get held up in the gospel is that I like Jesus. He's nice. I like that he came and died for my sins. I like, I like forgiveness. I like restoration with God. I don't like that obedience thing as much, <laughs> right? We get, oh, but now I have, to, I have another king. I have to obey him. That's where we get held up. Right? That's the issue. Do you want Jesus as king? Right? Jesus warns us in Matthew 13, Luke 8, Mark 4, with the parable of the sower, that the, the second seed, the first seed is plucked up by, by Satan or the enemy and it doesn't even hit their hearts. The second seed hits people's hearts, but there's no depth because it's rocky. And as soon as persecution comes on account of the word, it falls away. Right? Jesus, it's so important that he puts it in, in slightly different ways in three different Gospels, that there would be some type of persecution or some kind of affliction on account of the word, on account of you holding fast to Christ, living, uh, being a basic uh, Bible-believing Christian, that there would be some kind of affliction. And on account of that, there would be those that, that fall away. And so in Second Thessalonians, notice, notice what God's doing and, and the Holy Spirit's in, inspiring Paul to write in 2 Thessalonians 1.5, speaking of the affliction, speaking of the persecution, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. And so God's not outside of the affliction. He's in it and he's ordaining it to prove your worth. Right? When God brings a hard time into your life, He's not doing it as, sometimes it's because of discipline. Sometimes it's, it's because there's sin in our lives. But in that, in what's happening with the Thessalonians is he's bring, there's affliction from the Jewish communities to prove their worth, to prove their devotion to Christ. And we all go through that. We wouldn't, I don't know if we could uh, claim to be biblical Christians if we don't you know, in our whole lives, we don't see any affliction or any opposition to, to, to being a Christian. Now, we live in a pretty peaceful society, so it would look different than um, we constantly keep our eyes on, on India because it's on various lists. They're the 10th most persecuted country in the world for Christians. And so it would look different uh, in various cultural climates, but, but there would be some kind of opposition, whether it's from your own family members or, or from friends or losing friends. Uh, a lot of us have experienced that on account of being, being, wanting to be a godly Christian on account of the word. And so, so we often see persecution in the, in the form of mob rule or intimidation like, the, like what was happening here. And it's, it's a tactic for those uh, that Jude would call unreasoning animals, that they reject authority, they blaspheme, they're destroyed by what they understand instinctively, which is their passions. That there would be, in, in just living a godly life, there's probably at some point, if you vocalize your thoughts on what biblical uh, sexuality would be, views of marriage, child rearing, or just general ethics, then in our culture, you're probably going to get some kind of opposition anyways. And so the mob usually takes 
They don't want to argue like the Bereans wanted to examine the scriptures to see if they were true. They received them eagerly, right? They just get louder, more assertive, uh, and use that as a tactic. But again, Paul tells Timothy that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. There's going to be opposition if you want to be a godly Christian. Um, N.T. Wright has a lot of good quotes, and he's got one, if you're familiar with him. He said, wherever St. Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. (laughs) And so it's not just because we live in a more peaceful society, but you have to think that if there's promises like this in Scripture, that there'd be some kind of opposition or affliction just for someone who desires to live a godly life, are we experiencing that? Not that we should be seeking affliction, not that we should go out there and see how much persecution we should get, but, but are you living such a life focused on the word, focused on honoring Christ, that when you have an opportunity to preach the gospel, when you have an opportunity to talk to a family member, a friend, that... Uh, whether you think they would receive it or not, or or whether they would receive it or not, you know, hopefully you're in tune with the Spirit and, and asking for words to say and, and the right timing and, and the right cadence in your words and, and various things. But but are we living godly lives that would that we would see affliction because it's a promise? We should. Are we being ready for that? Are we living godly lives that? that the world wouldn't normally oppose. And so, uh, like I said, I don't know if it would be that hard in, in our day. I was just passing out a flyer at, uh, at Wright State the other day, and um, it's pretty easy to judge someone's character generally by how they present themselves. Now, don't get on me too much. I was, because you're all about to judge someone. I can guarantee it. So I was passing out flyers, and I came across two women with almost buzzed heads that were, had their hide, hair dyed pink. And I decided to give them a flyer. Right, I give everybody a flyer. And the one, I just say, hey, would you like to, may I invite you to our Christian fellowship? Pass them a flyer. They don't know me. They don't know my life. They just know that I'm a Christian, inviting them to a Christian fellowship. And she goes, oh, God, no. Uh, <laughs> right, there's a, a burst out. There's something in in our culture with with certain groups or certain oppositions that even knowing you're a Christian, they're opposed to it. We're probably always going to have that, right? But uh, that's how the world reacts. That's who the Lord wants us to encounter. We should be a witness to them whether they're going to receive it or not. They're going to, our sign says, acceptance as you are. So I don't care what you look like. I don't care what kind of past you had that, uh, or anything, is you're going to get an invite and we'd welcome you in. Right? The world is in opposition to basic biblical teachings. Right? Just teach on, or if you just had a view of audacious grace, where real sinners find real forgiveness. The world hates that. The world wants to see people punished. They don't want to see forgiveness happen. Right? Uh, think of just how... Bitterness comes across uh, if you come from a uh, maybe nominal or, or not Christian family. Just think about how you get together 
for Christmas dinners or, or Thanksgiving or anything and how much bitterness is just being passed around. I'm sure we all see that. And so the point is that we're not going to build a Christian culture unless, unless we take on, uh, or unless we're ready, we have a, a spirit that's ready to live a godly life and be ready to take on opposition. The Bereans, if you notice, they, Paul preached in the synagogue, but they didn't persecute him. The Jews from Thessalonica heard about it, and they're like, wait a minute, how long has he been there? They're not doing anything? Let's go get him. Let's go kick him out, uh, which they did successfully, but, but God had already done his work. That was, that was designed by God. The Bereans, it says, they received it eagerly. Because they had a, the Lord had instilled in them a mindset that they were looking for the Christ. And if they missed him or if they misinterpreted what he was supposed to look like, what they were supposed to see, they were eager to receive rebuke uh, or repentance or whatever they needed to, to find the Christ. Right? And it says a great number, a good number of them believed. And so it doesn't, I don't know if there's anything recorded in history, but. I can almost guarantee you that if the Jews were willing to travel from Thessalonica to Berea to kick out Paul, then those people who left the synagogue to start a church are probably, were probably getting persecuted as well. Paul was able to, to flee. Um, it seems like actually that, that Timothy and Silas uh, stayed back a little bit um, for, for various reasons, and Paul was the, the front man, and so they definitely wanted him gone. But the Berean Christians who found the Christ in Paul's preaching of suffering, they, they got afflicted. But, but I'm, I can guarantee you that they were happier there and they were uh, more at peace. And, and so, you know, I'm reminded of John 17, 17 in, John, in, in Jesus' high priestly prayer where he says, your word, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. That's what is the basis of our, of our culture, the basis of our identity as a church, is that Jesus is the word. He tells us um, how to live, how to see him, how to relate to him, how to relate to another. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in, in the word. And so that's the, the type of the Christian culture we want to have is in our own culture, are we receiving the word with all eagerness? Are we ready to examine our lives to see if we've missed something? Are we ready to receive, to receive rebukes so that we could live in a culture that would affect other cultures? Do we do that in our families? Do we do that with our spouses? Do we do that with other brothers and sisters? And so as, as we come to the table today, I want to remind us that what Paul was preaching that ever from the beginning that the Christ would come to suffer, right? The, in Genesis 3, uh, we get the first glimpse of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 where it talks about there is one singular offspring coming from the woman who will be in opposition to the serpent's offspring and he will crush the serpent's head, but he will have his heel bruised. And we see all throughout Old Testament prophecies of a, of a suffering Christ, that he was coming to suffer, not just in some nebulous sense, but he was suffering from his own people. And that's what we are constantly called to remember 
that he invites us to the table is that he was the one that suffered. He was the one that died. He took it upon himself. And he gives himself to us. Just how, um, just how Paul says that I was eager not just to share the gospel, but to share my entire self. That's what Christ is doing. We are eating his flesh and his blood this morning. We are feasting with him. We're communing with him. And we're going to commune with the brothers and sisters afterwards. And so uh, come to the table and dine with Christ.